We continue our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. Today, we come to the end of chapter 3 and the last of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in the province of Asia. It's a very famous letter, Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea. We will see that this is a church of which Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say. No words of commendation, no praise for standing up under pressure or defending good doctrine or avoiding sin. The only good thing in Laodicea is the church's thoroughly good opinion of itself, which Jesus says is utterly false. Although the Laodicean Christians thought that they were doing well, Jesus says of them, you make me sick to my stomach. Incredibly harsh words. And yet, as we will see, this is the most encouraging letter. It may not seem so at first, but Jesus' words to his church and to us are the most encouraging and winsome and inviting words imaginable. If you wanted a title for this sermon, it would be The Church with Christ on the Outside. And let's listen to Jesus' letter to his church as it's found in Revelation chapter 3. I've asked Rick Greener to read our passage today. Our reading today comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. As we have gone through these two chapters, we have recognized that each of Jesus' letters addresses a particular church in a particular context. The letters are personal. Jesus knows the church and he knows the city in which the church lives and ministers. And we found that when we understand something about the city and what was taking place there, then we can better understand Jesus' words 
to the church in that city. So let's begin by looking at the city of Laodicea. Laodicea was well known in the province of Asia and even the wider Roman Empire, and it was famous for three things in particular. Firstly, for its banking industry. Laodicea had a number of banks, all of which were solvent. Uh, the Roman lawyer and philosopher Cicero used to cash his checks at Laodicea. It was an extremely wealthy city. In AD 60, a terrible earthquake devastated the region, and the Roman Senate had approved a large relief package to be sent to the region to help rebuild the cities in that area. All of the cities accepted the relief funds, except the city of Laodicea. They were rich enough to rebuild their city without any external help. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote at the time, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. Secondly, Laodicea was famous for its textile industry. It was situated along a fertile valley which provided good grazing for sheep, and through careful breeding, the sheep farmers of Laodicea had managed to produce a soft, glossy black wool that became very fashionable and much in demand for clothes and carpets. And thirdly, Laodicea was famous for its medical school. Some of the top specialists of the ancient world were lecturers there. The school itself had produced two medicines that were extremely effective. The first was an ointment made from the spice nard for the ears, and the second was an eye salve made from Phrygian powder mixed with oil. Laodicea was one of three sister cities that were all situated in this fertile valley that was nourished by the Lycus River. Besides Laodicea, there was the city of Hierapolis, 10 kilometers across the river, and the city of Colossae, 18 kilometers up the river. Interestingly, Laodicea didn't have its own water supply. Water had to be piped in from some nearby springs. But these two other cities did have their own water. Hierapolis was famous for its hot medicinal springs, and Colossae was well known for its own natural spring of cold water. We'll look at that again in a moment. So, we have the city of Laodicea. Secondly, let's look at the condition of the church in that city. As is the case with all of his letters, the Lord Jesus begins with the words, I know. He knows better than those on the outside looking in at the church at Laodicea, and he also knows better than the Laodicean church itself. Despite their good opinion of themselves, Jesus knows their true spiritual condition. Verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. 
As we've seen, everyone in Laodicea knew about the hot medicinal water of Hierapolis across the river and the cold, refreshing spring water of Colossae up the road. And from the city, they could also see a very interesting natural phenomenon. You see, the hot water from the spring in Hierapolis traveled across a plain until it reached some cliffs just opposite the city of Laodicea. Over time, the mineral-rich water had covered these cliffs with a white encrustation so that these shining cliffs could be seen for miles around, a beautiful waterfall. The water gathered in a pool at the bottom of the falls, and unsuspecting travelers, or even tourists today, would go up to these pools, bend down, cup their hands, and take a sip of water, only to immediately spit it out again. As the hot water had traveled across the plain, it had become lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and the minerals gave it a chemical taste that made it disgusting. Jesus says of his church in Laodicea, You're just like your water. Hot water is good, and cold water is good. I wish you were one or the other, but you're neither, and your lukewarmness makes me sick. I'm going to spit, literally vomit you, out of my mouth. In his commentary on these verses, George Beasley Murray puts it this way, The Laodiceans do not reject the gospel of Christ, nor do they affirm it with joy. They maintain it without conviction, without enthusiasm, without reflection on its implications for life. Paul's language about the world being crucified to him and he to the world, Galatians 6, or of his being dominated by the one aim of pressing forward to win God's prize of life in his kingdom, Philippians 3, would have sounded to the Laodiceans like another religion, which indeed it was. The Cambridge professor and writer C.S. Lewis once pointed out that in Jesus' interactions with people, he usually produced one of three effects, hatred, terror, or adoration. He said there was no trace of people expressing mild approval. And in his commentary on this passage, the Canadian pastor, Daryl Johnson, picks up on Lewis's words and says this, mild approval. That is the condition that plagued the church in Laodicea. Is it not the condition that plagues the church today? Mild approval of the foundation and source of life. It's ghastly. The Laodiceans are not criticized for holding false ideas about Jesus Christ. Their theology was apparently orthodox. It's just that there was no zeal. They held their belief respectfully, but without deep conviction, without passion, without accepting and living the concrete life-transferring consequences, and it made Jesus sick. But once again, the call is not for us to look around at the church at large or even our own church. The call is personal. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What about me? What is the state of my relationship with Jesus today? 
in the words of Pastor John Stott, is mine a respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosity, a Christianity that is flabby and anemic? Have I merely taken a lukewarm bath of religion? So that is the condition of the church. Perhaps it's where we find ourselves today. But let's look thirdly at the cause. What produces this tepid, wishy-washy Christianity? Well, two things. A failure to understand who Jesus is and a failure to understand who we are. The first cause of lukewarm Christianity is a failure to recognize who Jesus truly is. There is, of course, too much to say here. Each of these letters has described just a little bit of who Jesus is in reference to that great vision we get of him back in Revelation chapter 1. But let's look at how Jesus introduces himself to this lukewarm church in verse 14. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The word Amen isn't just a full stop that we put at the end of our prayers. It literally means, so be it. What I have just said is binding upon me. It's an affirmation that what has been said is true. And Jesus doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth. Jesus in his person and life and words is the truth against which we measure every other truth claim. He is the faithful and true witness. He is therefore an utterly trustworthy foundation upon which we can build. As Pastor John Stott puts it, Christ is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. How can we ignore the advice of such a being? He cannot lie. He knows and tells the truth. It would be the height of lunacy to disregard his counsel. But not only is Jesus the Amen, the faithful and true witness, he describes himself as the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is picking up some words that would have been very familiar to the Laodiceans. As we've seen, Laodicea and Colossae were sister cities. They were geographically close, but their churches also had a close link. Remember that at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul writes and he says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. And so the Laodiceans would have been very familiar with the book of Colossians and some words in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is referring to here. There we read, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the one with whom we have to deal. This is the Lion of Judah. Jesus is my creator. He knit me together in my mother's womb. He is my sustainer. That breath that I just took comes from him. If he were to remove his hand from the universe for a moment, everything would fly apart into subatomic particles. He is my redeemer. He has brought me back to God by shedding his own blood for me on the cross. Failure to see that leads to wishy-washy spirituality. Pastor Daryl Johnson says, Lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. Lukewarmness says that the Amen and ruler of life is not worthy of passionate faith. Given who he is, Jesus Christ deserves a vigorous, robust, wholehearted zeal, the commitment of a heart and mind and will enthralled with and captured by a person. Zeal is the overflow of being fascinated with and compelled by the one who made us and redeemed us and holds us together. Pastor John Stott puts it this way, If he is true, if he is the Son of God who became a human being, died for our sins and was raised from death, if Christmas Day, Good Friday and Easter Day are more than meaningless anniversaries, then nothing less than our wholehearted commitment to Christ will do. This means that we will put him first in our private and public life, seeking his glory and obeying his will. Or to use a little phrase that Pastor Craig sometimes uses that always sticks with me, if Jesus is God, then he gets everything. The first cause of lukewarm spirituality is a failure to see who Jesus really is. And the second cause of lukewarm Christianity is a failure to recognize who we truly are. Verse 17, Jesus says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We tend to think that the picture that Jesus gives here of us being wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked only applies when we first enter the Christian life. Or perhaps it only applies after a time of backsliding and moving away from God. But actually, this picture is always true of us whether we have been Christians for five weeks or 50 years. We are always poor and need to come to Jesus for wealth. We are always naked and need clothing with Jesus' righteousness, not a righteousness that we try to stitch together from our own good deeds. We are always blind to God and to spiritual realities and to God's working in our world and to our own spiritual condition. Now, you might recoil from that and feel that that is overstating the case. 
But don't you see that by saying, I'm not really that poor or naked or blind, that's the very thing that leads to lukewarm, wishy-washy spirituality. When we feel that we are rich and have everything we need, we don't come to God for true treasure that will last. When we feel clothed in our own righteousness, we don't come to God for cleansing and healing. Again, I can hear someone objecting, but this can't be right. All of this talk about poverty and nakedness and blindness and sin is all very negative. What about victorious Christian living? What about the fact that we are overcomers and that we rule and reign with Christ? Talking about us being poor and naked and blind will lead to a joyless Christianity. But in reality, the exact opposite is true. Being poor and naked and blind beggars enables us to fully appreciate and take real joy in God's banquet. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist pastor in London in the 1800s, and in one of his sermons he pointed out that you always need to have beggars at your feast. He said, when you have a group of rich ladies at a banquet, when the main meal is brought in, they sip their champagne and cast an eye over it and say, hmm, but the beggars, the beggars celebrate every dish. You can imagine them on the other side of the table from those prim and proper ladies. Look at the size of that turkey. Hooray for the turkey. Look at the roast potatoes. Look at that gravy. Look at the size of that cake. Have you ever seen such a cake? Beggars cheer for every dish. And the question is, how am I changed by the mercy of God, or do I take it for granted? There was an old hymn that we don't sing very often nowadays, probably because it makes us depressed. But I hope we have seen that sincerely singing the words of this hymn is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of real and unrestrained joy at what God has done for us, something we could never do for ourselves. Two verses of the hymn Rock of Ages, written by Augustus Montague Toplady. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all could never sin erase. Thou must save, and save by grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour or I die. We've looked at the city, the church and its condition, and the causes of that condition. Let's move on fourthly to the cure for spiritual lukewarmness. We've already touched on this indirectly, but there are three things here. Jesus counsels us, he commands us, and he invites us. Number one, Jesus counsels us. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes 
so that you can see. We don't need to push this image of buying from Jesus too far, as if we can buy salvation from God. Jesus speaks to the Laodiceans who knew all about trade and banking in terms with which they would identify. In fact, the reference here is probably to Isaiah 55, where God says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. But if the cause of spiritual lukewarmness is a failure to see who Jesus is and who we are, then one of the cures is seeing our poverty and seeing that Christ alone can meet that. We're counseled to buy gold refined in the fire, true heavenly eternal riches that are found only in a relationship with Jesus. Of course, there are many lovely things in this world and many wonderful experiences, but it's so easy for us to focus on the gifts and not on the giver. Behind that wonderful overseas holiday or sunset walk on the beach or music concert is a gracious and loving God who has richly given us all these things. We're counseled to buy white clothes to wear so that we can cover our shameful nakedness. In other words, our righteousness is found in Jesus. Before we became Christians, we tried to make ourselves righteous, right with God, through our own effort. Well, I'm a relatively good person. I try to be honest. At least I'm better than her. Unfortunately, that pattern doesn't go away when we become Christians. We tend to think, well, now I'll really be good, and I'll read my Bible and go to church. And of course, we do need to do those things, but not as the route to salvation, but rather as the fruit of salvation. Gratitude for what God has already done for us, and a desire to deepen our relationship with him. Whether we are just entering the Christian life, or whether we've been Christians for decades, we recognize that we stand before God clothed in Jesus' righteousness alone. His perfect life is attributed to us. And then we are counseled to buy salve for our eyes so that we can see. In other words, our wisdom is found in Jesus. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Number two, in terms of the cure for spiritual lukewarmness, Jesus not only counsels us, he commands us. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. There's something very moving here. You may know that the Greek word for Christian love is agape. It's decision love, an act of the will. But interestingly, Jesus uses here the Greek word phileo. Phileo is affectionate love, love that feels, love that likes being with the object of its affection. It's a wonderful balance that even while their lukewarmness makes Jesus feel sick, at the same time he feels strong love for them 
and for us. And out of that, he commands two things. The word repent speaks of a decisive, irrevocable act. Turn around and do the opposite to what you are doing once and for all. And the word earnest is a present imperative. It describes a continual, zealous love for Jesus. Number three, in terms of the cure for spiritual lukewarmness, Jesus not only counsels us and commands us, he also invites us. Verse 20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I'm sure that you're familiar with this Bible verse. It's often used in evangelistic campaigns as an invitation to those who've never opened up the door of their lives to the Lord Jesus. And let me therefore not waste this opportunity. I must ask you, have you invited the Lord Jesus into your life? And if not, what is preventing you from doing that even today? But it's probably important to see that actually this is Jesus' letter to his church. These are good church-going Christians whom Jesus is addressing. But they've ignored him and marginalized him and acted condescendingly towards him for so long that it's almost as if he has been excommunicated. He is standing outside the church asking to be let in. Once again, though, this is a personal appeal. Although the words are addressed to the church, they apply to individual members of the church, you and me. Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Pastor Darrell Johnson writes, the solution to lukewarmness, therefore, is not to jack up warm emotions. The solution is not to exert more self-sufficiency. The solution is to open the door again. And the results of opening up the door, Jesus says, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. In Oriental lands, sharing a common meal indicated a strong bond of affection and companionship. It's interesting, too, that in the Song of Songs, chapter 5, the bride's beloved is pictured as standing outside and knocking. So this verse speaks about an intimate relationship enjoying a meal with Jesus, not only in this life, but in the life to come. This is a reflection of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we find at the end of the book of Revelation. But I think it's important that we understand the consequences of opening up the door. In his commentary on these verses, Pastor John Stott writes this, It is not merely for supper that Christ enters the human soul. It is also to exercise sovereignty. If he comes in to bestow his salvation, he comes in also to receive our submission. His entry is an occupation. He comes in to take control. No room may be locked against him. He has conquered us. He is the master of the house. His flag flies from our roof. This is what it means to be committed to Christ and to be wholehearted in our allegiance to him. It is to surrender without conditions to his lordship. 
It is to seek his will in his word and promptly to obey it. It is not just attending religious services twice a Sunday or even every day, let alone on the major festivals. It's not just leading a decent life or believing certain certain articles of the creed. No, it is first to repent, turning decisively from everything we know to be wrong, and then to open the door to Jesus Christ, asking him to come in. It is getting our gold, our clothes, and our eyesalve from him. It is being personally and unconditionally committed to him. It is putting him first and seeking his pleasure in every department of our life, public and private. Nothing less will do. We've looked at a great deal in these few short verses, and actually we've really only scratched the surface. But we looked at the city of Laodicea and the lukewarm condition of the church. We've seen that the causes of spiritual lukewarmness are a failure to see Jesus as he truly is and ourselves as we truly are. We've looked at the cure that Jesus counsels us, commands us, and invites us. But finally, look at the promise in verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We've looked already at the fact that fellowship with Jesus is not for the years of this life alone, but for eternity. And this promise balances the threat that Jesus makes in verse 16. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And so let me end here with another quote from John Stotts, which highlights that contrast and sums up the passage. He says this, To be half-hearted, complacent, and only casually interested in the things of God is to prove oneself not a Christian at all, and to be so distasteful to Christ as to be in danger of vehement rejection but to be wholehearted in one's devotion to Christ, having opened the door and submitted without reserve to him, is to be given the privilege both of supping with him on earth and of reigning with him in heaven. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Amen.